weren't just pissed off because they were closing our school. We were pissed off because of the social, the economic, um, the racial injustice of it. So we have politics. We didn't just have righteous indignation. We didn't just have a challenge to the system. We also have politics. And I think that that is the part that we often don't amplify enough, that it wasn't just the offense of it. It was also the impact of politics that are exclusionary, that are reductive, um, that we were fighting against to replace those politics with the politics of the 99%, the many, the people who are often um, regulated to the margins, but also the people who keep Chicago working. Our parents are the bus drivers and the train operators. Our parents are the ones fighting for, who were fighting for 15 in the fast food industry. Our parents are the people who work in healthcare and childcare. That was Stacey Davis Gates, president of the Chicago Teachers Union. While Stacey is newly elected, she was one of the founding members of the caucus that formed in 2008 to revitalize the union and the fight for quality education for the youth of Chicago. After two years of organizing, caucus leaders won elected offices in the union and began to forge stronger ties with parent groups and other community organizations in order to battle school administrators and city politicians. As students are returning to school this fall, it is appropriate that we talk with Stacy, and it was inspiring to hear of the fights, the fight to transform the union into a powerful organization, the fight to block the efforts of the Chicago mayor and other political leaders to reduce the quality of schooling in the city. In talking to Stacy, I am reminded that our battle is beyond a battle for just wages and benefits. As she says, that approach, that narrow approach, is a pathway to extinction. We need to have a broader vision of the world we deserve and then fight like hell to bring that world into fruition. The broader vision is so important today as the GOP's rush to authoritarianism has made the fight for democracy, a fight that is so basic to our world, but on a small element of a better world that fights so central for today's lives. Let's join my co-host Sheree Davis Hear more from Stacy. Hey, folks, how you doing? Stephen Pitts. Uh, I'm co-host of Black War Talk. I'm excited to be here today because we have not only my co-host. Should we? How you doing, girl? I'm good, Stephen. How you doing? Fine. And where are you, by the way? I'm in Chicago, which somehow I managed to get here every summer for the last couple of years. So I'm really excited, and it's beautiful here. As you know, that's my hometown, so I enjoy Chicago. I do know. There's almost always a Chicago theme album every episode. And so not only in Chicago, you're with, you're with one of my new best friends, Stacey Davis-Gates. How you doing, Stacey? I'm well, Chicago, Southside. In the house. Um, from our audience, Stacey is newly elected president of the Chicago Teachers Union. Congratulations on that. Thank That's you so much. That's an step. Huge step. How do you feel about that? Um, I have the right mix of trepidation, hope. And bravada, because I think it's going to take um, a bold leadership to carry the second generation of rank and file leadership that prioritizes justice as it happens within the racial, social, economic and educational constructs. Karen Lewis, Jesse Sharkey um, led our union for the past 12 years. It is virtually unheard of for an insurgent caucus that speaks the language of the people that prioritizes the 99% to get a decade of leadership and then be able to transition out to new leaders that ran, quite frankly, the four of us, um, myself, or excuse me, me, I hear Karen correcting me right now, my grammar, me, uh, Jackson Potter, Crystal uh, Williams-Hayes, and Maria Moreno, we ran explicitly on a racial justice platform. Um, We ran explicitly um, on a platform that's going to challenge the segregation in the city because we believe that segregation is what is impacting our public education system. It is what is impacting 
um, our lack of affordability in the city. It's what has and continues to impact the low level of vaccination uptake in our community, as well as the high incidence of um, COVID infection rate. So segregation has to be taken on. We have to make it visible. Um, We have to challenge it and we have to bring solution and accountability for it. One reason I'm glad to talk with you, um, Cliz, is obviously great work that y'all have done there at CTU in terms of building the union back up, in terms of fighting for our kids' education and challenging some of the feudal ways that people run politics in Chicago. I think it's particularly important to understand what y'all did, how you did, and learn lessons because of a national crisis. You know, we have simply these onslaught of some authoritarian right-wing people, and I'm being nice today and saying people, who are committed to simply through all the levels of power rip us back and take away all of our rights. And uh, a lot of times, because of both our anger at what's happening and our shock, we kind of react. But the reaction doesn't always build power. And and so the important thing is knowing that this is a a marathon. And to do it right, you got to do it right, which means build power where you are in the schools, in the neighborhoods, at the local level. That power builds up. So I'm excited to hear more about what you're doing, how you did it, and a lot of things. a quick opening sort of thought throughout there, you know, that um, there's been a lot of phenomenal org- labor organizing in the last year or so with the Amazon stuff and Starbucks and other variety of things. But prior to this upsurge, in the previous sort of upsurge have been the teacher organizing, you know? And in many ways, with you, you, I mean, CTU, kind of led the way of that. You know, and, and my sense is that it wasn't just CTU, but prior to the kind of the, the big public battles we saw nationwide, there's a lot of work to rebuild the union through CORE. CORE is with the caucus, working for educators. That's right. Tell me a bit, t- tell me a bit of how that happened, Okay. Um, I am a founding member of the caucus of rank and file educators, along with Jackson Potter, Jesse Sharkey, Karen Lewis. How did it happen? You know, that that is a good question. It happened because of the type of neoliberal right-wing overreach that we're experiencing in this moment. They were closing schools. They closed my school. <laughs> and they weren't just closing my school. They were closing schools all over this uh, city. They were turning schools around. They were firing large scores of Black women um, from these schools and blaming them for the failures of segregation, of white supremacy, of patriarchy. Um, They made us responsible for test scores. And we know standardized testing is a tool of the eugenics movement. So how do you make a Black woman on the South Side of Chicago responsible for Darwin? Right. How do you make black children whose families have been locked out of economic opportunity responsible for achieving on that test? Um, So it's been this sick experiment um, at the highest level of government. Remember, Arne Duncan took this on a road and he took this on a road to every single school district in this country. And it wasn't until white mothers in suburban areas said, wait a minute, with all this testing, until you started to see people kind of um, give space and opportunity for the discussion around standardized testing. And yet it was still depoliticized because we did not talk about its role in serving to continue to continuing the impression, um, the segregation, um, the racism, the exclusion that said the right wing and the neoliberals called us out. Um, They actually dared us to say what they were doing was wrong. And they dared us to say that there was another way. Our union at the time, my school was being closed, Inglewood High School. By the way, my father graduated from Inglewood, by the way. Okay, so in the Lorraine Hansberry Theater is where Arnie Duncan came to my school. And he told us that we had failed. And I couldn't help but think of all of the failures of government and leadership that um, surrounded the school community. You know, I was sitting next to Jackson Potter at the time, um, who is now the vice president of the Chicago Teachers Union, 
with another one of our students, uh, Latoya, who is one of our lawyers at Chicago Teachers Union right now. When I tell you I'm proud of her, that's an understatement. That said, he said that that young woman was a failure and that Jackson and Stacy were um, the culprits. And we pushed back on that. And we didn't just push back on it at Inglewood. We did it across the city because this was a concerted effort to push black people out of the city. At the same time they were closing schools, they were um, foreclosing on affordable housing and the housing projects. So this was Chicago saying to black people in particular, you are no longer welcome here. And in order to educate your children, in order to live affordably, you have to go somewhere else. That seemed unjust to core. And so we, you found this collection of people around the city. Jesse Sharkey was on the North side, pushing back against the, um, the J.R. ROTC programs that were being forced upon his uh, school community. Um, Karen Lewis, um, just a brilliant black woman who believed in and loved black people, saw the writing on the wall, a native Chicagoan, a Southsider. Um, she said no. And so you see this motley crew <laughs> of educators who have politics. And I, and I want to talk about that part a little bit. We, we weren't just pissed off because they were closing our school. We were pissed off because of the social, the economic, um, the racial injustice of it. So we have politics. We didn't just have righteous indignation. We didn't just have a challenge to the system. We also have politics. And I think that that is the part that we often don't amplify enough, that it wasn't just the offense of it. It was also the impact of politics that are exclusionary, that are reductive, um, that we were fighting against to replace those politics with the politics of the 99%, the many, the people who are often um, regulated to the margins, but also the people who keep Chicago working. Our parents are the bus drivers and the train operators. Our parents are the ones fighting for were, who were fighting for 15 in the fast food industry. Our parents are the people who work in healthcare and childcare. So this collection of people matter. And, and I think the most important component of that original like configuration were community groups like COCO, um, uh, Brighton Park Neighborhood um, Organization, um, the Logan Square Neighborhood Association. These are places that have been doing the work themselves without the, the numbers and the resources that the union could give. Our theory of the case is that there are tens of thousands of members in our union juxtaposed to the revenue that comes in as a result of their duels. And that if they wanted to fight, not just for their school community, but for our city and for the children in our city and their families, that we can make this work. Now, this is a very imperfect process, right? Because we're all human beings. And I think we have done something that is both a model of work, but also a work in progress. The part of this that I do, the part of this that I would like to highlight is how imperfect coalition work is and how it is a journey and it's never a destination, that it ebbs and it flows. And that what you have to do, I, I think the, the, the chief thing that you have to do is that you have to agree that the work can only been, be done in coalition so you can figure out how to maintain that coalition. Stacey, I'm going to get back to you. You started talking about how you how you built CORE. I'm going to go deeper into the whole building of CORE a bit. But one thing I thought about as you were talking was that a lot of times we forget that to the extent that the elite have their way, the purpose of education is to reproduce class and gender and racial hierarchies. And how the outcome may vary when you have like a an economy based on agriculture, you have one way of re reproducing it, right? We have an economy based on you know manufacturing, they, 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 they reproduce it. We have an economy based on like high tech stuff, 
a third way to reproduce it. But fundamentally, they're going to try to shape education to fit their needs, not our needs. And so I think the whole notion of their view of the purpose is important to kind of talk about in state, because then we speak about your politics. As you said, I hear your politics, uh, the politics of the 99%. It's a very important thing to get the distinction, but I want to, if we can, get a little bit into the nitty gritty. How did you build CORE? And what's it like prior to the establishment of this kind of motley crew coming together to change the world? So what it looks like before work, parents and community groups pushing back against closings. It was their voices um, that were there. Our union was largely absent. In fact, um, the directive that I received from the union at the time when I was ranking file and and my school was closed was to go to the job fair and just to get another job. Um, No evidence of a broader analysis of how those jobs would run out, even no broader analysis, even for its own existence as a union. The union only works if you have workers. And so if you continue to marginalize the number of workers in the workplace, then the union itself can't exist. And yet the analysis was devoid of even that um, very basic impact. That said, how did you build it? I think people built it as a caucus of hope, potential, a pathway um, to something better. You get all of these um, organizers and activists from the left. You get just educators who don't identify as leftists, but have identified the injustice. You get black educators who are like something has to be done because this doesn't feel right. And this feels like an experience we've already had and we need a voice. Um, And so you get this very, like I said, motley crew of individuals together and you decide that you have to stop the slaughter of public schools in Chicago. Like I'm very clear, if CORE had not been formed and had not won leadership in our union, the Chicago public schools would look a lot like New Orleans public schools. And where there is not a traditional neighborhood school anywhere in that city, it is all privatized, it is exclusionary, and it doesn't serve the public. It serves the purposes of privatization, which, you know, I think folks who listen to this podcast will understand that privatization has only helped to erode the black worker class. How many years kind of transpired between when you kind of first began CORE and when you kind of began to have full, have, you know, be in leadership of CTU? CORE was formed in 2008 and we took leadership in 2010. So we yeah a couple of years before. Now that also speaks to the lack of organizing capacity that those who were in power had. It also speaks to the comfortable nature of union leadership and that you don't see a threat coming because you don't even see the biggest threat as a threat. So the biggest threat was the privatization of the Chicago public schools that, you know, really and truly threatened the existence of the union. Um, They were placated at the time with 4% raises. Um, And they were unable to feel the discontent in the membership because they weren't having the right types of conversations and they weren't asking the right types of questions. CORE did. In fact, one of the things that CORE did very visibly, it will start going to um, the board of education meetings and saying, you know, this is wrong and that there's a better way. And this is what it is. And then CORE joined the chorus of community groups, parents and families, students that were already pushing back, showed themselves as, you know, willing to partner. Um, and then you start building um, another chorus because we weren't the only ones experiencing this, thinking this, um, trying to figure this out. And so you get like folks saying, well, who are you? And sure, I'll vote for you. And so there was a runoff um, that year and CORE came out on the other side of it. And um, the first thing that met us, you know, with with the other side of the door (laughs) was um, 
legislation that doubled down on neoliberalism. Um, they actually wanted to take our right to strike away from us. Um, AstroTurf groups like Stand for Children, Advanced Illinois, um, they were well situated in the halls of power. They were well situated with the elite. School policy in Chicago for generations has been given to us to replicate to the point that you made when we open to replicate the, the class structures, the racial hierarchies um, in the city through uh, the civic, um, uh, the, the commercial club um, through the civic committee, um, a long history of that. That said, um, they had a, a, a piece of legislation that sought to take our right to strike away um, now, Illinois Democrats believe that they are um, pro-labor. Um, so they passed the terrible legislation um, that said you can go on strike, but you had to jump through fire hoops in order to do so. Um, and so our union with community um, led a strike in 2012 because we jumped through all of those hoops and then we put the fire out. And then we kept working. But here's the thing about capital. Here's the thing about um, folks putting you in your place. They don't go away and they always have a deep bench. And so in 2013, they came back with a list of 200 schools that they wanted to close. And the vast majority of those schools were located on the south and west sides of the city. And that means that those were black schools. And so um, they closed 50 of those schools. Rahm Emanuel closed the most schools um, in the history of this country. And let that sit there for a minute. What does it mean to close a public school on black children, especially when you understand the history of our people in this country and our, um, our journey, you know, out of slavery and what it meant for black people to create, because we did this now, create public schools for our children because we believe very firmly that we needed to know how to read and write, that we needed to know have the means to uh, maintain our liberation. And so he closed those 50 schools. And I think that that had the inverse impact. It radicalized more people. Um, you can't keep taking from people. You can't keep beating people up because at some point you don't have anything to lose. So why not fight? And so that's how we find ourselves as the Chicago Teachers Union in this fight. The only thing we had to lose was the job that was already on the chopping block. So why not, you know, wage the fight? Um, Karen's leadership of the contract campaign in 2012, the powerful way in which it was demonstrated, it made members who may not otherwise been um, inclined to do this. Look, it take a lot to get a teacher to break a rule. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it, it takes a lot <laughs> because that's not their first instinct. Their first instinct um, is to create spaces of protection and support for students. And um, so they make rules for that. So um, look, you can't keep taking and expecting people to maintain it. And they kept taking and they kept taking and they kept taking. And here we are today in the second generation of our leadership. Yeah. I want to get into the, the, ways you see being being new unionists. But I want to say something really quick, and Sheree, I think you might want to say some things as well. But as an outsider, I was always impressed with the fact that, as you said, they said some hoops for to jump through, and y'all clear the hoops. Because they, they, they wanted to say you had to show the support of the rank and file, political strike. Was it they wanted like a 75% bar? They did it wasn't the idea that vote 75%. Why you for know about all of this? Yes, 75%. And here's the thing that they didn't know that if you are an organizer committed to making sure that you can do this powerfully, it ain't 75%. It's 75% plus 10 plus another 10. And what that helped us accomplish was a, a strike authorization vote of over 90%. That's what I was going to say, that, that, that in some ways they, they helped you build by putting a barrier in front of you. They said, that's cool. I'll jump the barrier, you know, and that's a, um, an important thing because too often I think we look at trying to have what people call um, militant minorities and, and you can't win that way. You got to win by militant majorities that are super majorities. And a lot of times we forget that. I'm sure you're going to say something I thought. 
Well, I, it's kind of interesting to me because I actually come to know about this work through um, when I was in school and I started learning about critical race theory and urban education in Chicago was literally the case study um, to look at. Uh, and I think there's a couple of different pieces that I feel like are underneath this that I wanted to open up a little bit more because one, I'm hearing um, an analysis that is a racial analysis, but it seems like there's a multiracial um, coalition that is being built. Um, it also seems like there's another piece that we have to acknowledge is that when we're talking about educators, it is majority women organizations. Um, and the other, the last piece is like, how exactly do you go about bringing both the leadership that is ready to challenge, but also um, doing the internal organizing work in ways that differ from um, maybe traditional labor organizing? Because it feels like you all were kind of you saw the box and you started kind of moving outside of the box in ways that were not legible that allowed you to be able to do certain things. And so that piece around politics, you talked about politics, uh, little P, but then there's also a piece around politics, big P that was interwoven in some of the work that you were doing. Wow. Um, everything that happened to us that was bad turning schools around where they fire every person in that school, um, closing schools and then opening up a privatized version of that school that excluded the majority of children in that neighborhood, um, doing it all under mayoral control so there's not immediate accountability for the decisions that are made. Because when you go to the ballot box every four years, you're not just going to the ballot box for public education. You're going for a full complement of areas, right? That said, the big P politics was necessary because you couldn't continue to do bad stuff to us legally. Like, we shouldn't be the only ones jumping through hoops um, because it was legal. So one of the things that we've had to do is engage in the legislative and electoral arenas, which if you are running a union that is led from the left um, is a difficult thing to hold because the two-party politics system in this country um, can be tone deaf can agree on the oppression of black people. It can agree on the oppression of females. It can agree on the oppression of children. It can agree on the oppression of everyone except for itself, right? That said, we had to figure out how do you render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar while also doing the work to transform the space in which you want it to operate. So I'll give you an example of that. Mayor oral control was the first thing that was done to usher in privatization. So the mayor of Chicago, and this was under Daly in 1995, they said it all, they, 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 they created this illusion that the buck would only stop with him, right? That he could be accountable for all of it. And people bought it. And, and who had the power to fight it at that time? So we said that mayoral control is a problem, one of the problems of how like this patriarchy, how this white supremacy is expressed is through mayoral control. So we have to ameliorate that. And so the opposite of that for us was a um, an elected school board. And so you see this years long campaign that was anchored first in the community. Right. And then we joined the coalition and then we began collectively creating um, an elected school board as a voters' rights issue, as a civil rights issue. Why is it that the vast majority of parents who are of color don't have any say in their child's education? Why is it in the third largest school district where it's 90% children of color families of color, that they get to pay their taxes, but don't have any say in how um, that money is allocated in the city, right? So 
it does become an issue of racial justice, an obvious issue of racial justice. And so we make that a platform for every candidate that wants to rock with us. You got to tell us if you believe in mayoral control or if you believe in democracy for brown families, for black families, for working class families, right? That becomes a chief issue. And not only does that become a chief issue, it becomes wildly popular, even with those who do not have children. Because the question is like, well, we vote for everything else in Chicago, right? Like literally vote for everything else, but we can't vote for this. And then you get to talk about the multi-billion dollar budget (laughs) and how that is connected to why you don't get a voice. Right. And so we, we lift up democracy as the thing that as one of the components that is necessary in order to give our students what they deserve in order to give their families what they deserve in order to give our members a space in which they can operate as professionals, as caring individuals, um, et cetera. So um, an elected school board became one of the ways in which we began to express big P politics and connected the dots along organizing, um, connected the dots in terms of how we put forth legislation, connected the the dots and how um, other school districts all across the state have the ability to um, feel, touch, influence, power through and lead school policy. But a black mother on the south side of Chicago who has three children in the Chicago public schools, who at that time, I'm talking about myself, um, I was dropping my kids off in three different schools. And I wasn't I wasn't special. <laughs> that That is the experience of so many people is that our children are forced to do the most to get the least. And so how do we say we get an opportunity to say something about that? Well, let's get an elected school board in Chicago. And when I tell you that the power structure in this city fought that tooth and nail, that's an understatement. You know, I've never seen so many rich people who never sent their kids to public school have such um, aggressive opinions on my working class ability to call a shot about my children in a school. So to the point that you made earlier, Stephen, and it all goes back to it, the function of schools for those who are in power is never to liberate those who attend them. And it plays out in every decision that we have experienced in Chicago. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. And I should get into the point, but real quickly, the example you gave of the vast opposition, well, the, the, the strong opposition of many parents who didn't have schools, didn't have kids in the schools, it's a, to me, it's a great way of emphasizing the idea of what are, what is the goal of schools for the elite? Because oftentimes you say, well, ain't none of my business, y'all decide. Ain't none of my business, right? But that wasn't their stance. The stance was, wait a second, it is our business for certain reasons. We want to get engaged. But Shreya, I thought you said a, you had a couple of points. You said something. Well, I think there's a couple of different pieces underneath this because I do, I asked specifically also about leadership um, mm-hmm. because there's, there's a way that um, what um, is embedded in what you've said, Stacey, um, is that there was a shift in the practice of leadership, right? There was a shift in the way that decisions were getting made. Like there's the the mechanics of what you all were doing internally um, shifted. And, you know, I, I feel like when we talk about transformational leadership and we talk about, you know, leadership development, that um, one of the things that we have to get people to pull out is that there's certain things that, um, that you're doing um, that we just do because it needs to be done, but we don't always name it and call it leadership. And so I'm just wondering again, with a membership, again, that's majority women um, with a, a, a care ethic that I'm hearing um, being described. Um, how is it that you think that a shift in leadership impacted the, the ability to be able to move what you were doing? It was necessary. Um, Look, one of the things that I've said in 
since I've been vice president and I was, I started vice, uh, I became vice president um, once Karen retired and Jesse ascended to pre- the presidency. Um, what was that? September of 2018. Our members can be trusted to make good decisions. And they can be trusted to make good decisions because we create infrastructure at the union to clarify those decision points and the implications of the decisions. And we help connect dots. Organizing is also about telling the truth. Sometimes we talk about organizing in such a romantic way, right? Um, And we miss the core component of it is that we lay bare very clearly what the state of affairs are and the different pathways that we have available to us to grapple with those that state of affairs. It means that you are giving folks the unvarnished truth and then also calling them in to grapple with it, but not just to make it a theoretical exercise, but to call them in to understand the theory of it, but understand also the urgency of making a decision and acting on that decision. That's where I think there is a blessing to have people who are deeply engaged in the city. See, all of our members are required to live in the city. And so you're not understanding the city of Chicago from a suburban or an out-of-state point of view. You are experiencing Chicago as a Chicagoan and you're experiencing it as a parent. See, our members are parents too. And we send our children to public schools. So when you are dealing with the impact of school policies, you're not just dealing with it as an employee, like as a worker, you're dealing with it as a mom or a dad, you're dealing with it as a professional or an expert in the field of education. So you have this complex relationship, especially with bad policy. And let me drill down even more. As a black educator, you're also, because of the hyper-segregation in the city, you are also living in communities where they're closing schools down right across the street from where you live, where there is now a closed school and two vacant lots to your left and to your right. So you are experiencing the fullness of privatization. You are experiencing the fullness of the lack of affordability. You are experiencing the fullness of the lack of public employee jobs available for the next generation, which is why the homes are getting foreclosed. Look, on my block right now, and I live on the south side of Chicago in the Chatham neighborhood, I am counting two homes um, that are being rehabbed because of tax sales that the individuals who lived there, it was their grandparents. It was their grandparents that were able to live in that neighborhood to buy those homes. But what we miss in this conversation is that their grandparents worked for the city of Chicago or for the county of Cook or for the state of Illinois or for the Chicago public schools. Those jobs don't exist in the plentifulness of what they once existed in and the privatized portion of those jobs right now don't offer the type of security and pay to maintain that home that was handed down to that family. So you see what I'm saying in terms of connecting the dots is that union cannot just be concerned with a pay scale and a sick bank and a vacation day. That is important. God knows that is important. And I thank God we have it. And once I get that check, once I have my vacation and my sick time, what does it matter when these vacant lots continue to pop up? What does it matter when there are foreclosure signs all in my neighborhood and the school that I want to walk my children to is closed down? It forces you to do one of two things, leave or fight. 
you're mentioning the um the the tax sales of those homes, and I've always thought that what we don't talk enough about is how some of the backbone of the of the of the strength of black communities were folk who worked in the unionized jobs, you know, Southeast side, Chicago steel mills, auto factories, packing house was as active, um, folk who worked in the public sector. And as you see the deindustrialization de- uh, of our economy and the attacks, as you said, on the public sectors, it's eroding the, the base of a strong black success. And with, with a lot of obvious sort of implications because of that. What was really cool hearing you and Shri talk about the, the practical leadership because oftentimes, a lot of p- people get a sense of the nitty gritty of you doing that. People think about, wow, what a great speech. Or maybe now, oh my God, what a great Instagram, great tweet, whatever that stuff's going to be, right? Or we had a, we had a, a march of you know, 100 people inside of 2,000 people or out of 20,000 people. And the idea of the day-to-day is so damn important. And I wonder if you could talk about... How do you maintain the strength of CTU? I'll say maintain the strength of the core strength. Use core in both both respects, right? In, in, in the sense that you never begin with 100%. You never get 100% because some people don't, won't want to roll with you. But a lot of people don't, don't know. So how do you kind of make, how do you make sure you imbibe with more and more people the spirit of core, the spirit of strong unionism? And... I know when, when simply nice speeches y'all gave. So there's some sense of the nitty gritty of leadership. You mentioned about knowing where the the addition points actually were, those sort of things. Talk a bit about how you kind of expanded the strength and maintained the strength uh, of what you're doing at CTU. Wow. Um, I mean, I love when people ask me these questions because they actually think I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me. <laughs> no, seriously. Um, I, that is serious. Um, a lot of this is about understanding what the facts are, right? And then not arguing about facts because facts are facts, right? So let's let's agree what the facts are. The facts are is that black people are being um, excommunicated from the city of Chicago. Right. Get out is what, you know, black folks are being. So that's a fact. Um, see our census, see 50 school closings, see the destruction of public housing and affordable housing, see the erosion of public employee um, jobs. Right. That's where we were living. That's that. Like when you talk about the, the south side of Chicago and neighborhoods like Chatham, or you talk about the west side of Chicago and neighborhoods like Austin, you're talking about public employees that hold and anchor those down. Now it's retirees with the pension holding those places down. Every time I walk out of my house and I see my neighbors putting up windows or gutters or um, or getting their roof done, I thank God for their pension. Because that's how they're getting it done. That said, Chicago doesn't leave you a lot of room to be, to. it just doesn't leave you a lot of room to have choice, right? You don't get a lot of choice. Segregation says yes or no. You either submit or you don't. Um, what our union has chosen to do very explicitly is not submit. And to find other people who refuse to submit to that as well. Now, what happens in between the decision to um, to challenge and the decision to organize is the decision to about how we do it, and the how is very important. Look, labor has a quite the reputation and community circles. And I will tell you, it has been one of the hardest things for me to navigate because if you look at labor and how it is largely configured, it is white, it is male. I'm not, (laughs) I am black and I am female. And so when we are in coalition It is with the community that I find the most familiarity, safety and comfort and confusion because I represent labor. 
So you often as a black woman in this space, because I can only speak for myself, you find yourself in a lot of isolated spaces because I am a representative of labor and, and I'm not white and I'm not male. So how can I be held accountable for that space? That's one. I think two is this, this concept of how do you interact in a space of coalition with community groups who have every right to be suspicious, who have every right to not want to be in coalition with you, who have every right battle scar um, baggage to say that this doesn't work. So this constant play and replay of how I think is the work because listen, the Supreme court said back to the plantations, right? The Supreme court said back to barefoot and pregnant. The Supreme court said back to working for whatever I give you, right? The Supreme court said you don't get to vote anymore. Um, the Supreme Court is making it very clear about the type of world that they want to create for the few. What wealthy land holding white men is, is that what it was? You know, everything after the Second Amendment, they're ready to erase. I think I have that right. That said, and part of the first two, by the way, they might give they, they might give away part of the First Amendment too. Your freedom, separation, and state. So. They want to take those 10 and get rid of, um, keep one. But I'm sorry, go on, Stacey. No, fair enough. Like, get it together, Stephen, because I think we, and we have to start speaking about that explicitly because I think if we, if we own what we are saying about this current state, then we're also saying that we're going to submit to a process of coalition that is going to be uncomfortable for labor and for community. And I think we have to be very clear about what that means. There are power dynamics there. There are past harms there. There are resource deficits. Um, There is power (laughs) with resources. All of these things complicate the relationship. And that coalition is the only thing that is going to keep us alive in this current state of America. So we got to make decisions and the decision has to be, this is it. And then we have to commit to the struggle of falling in love with each other and then falling out of love with each other and then figuring out how to get back right together because that's the only way. The right wing and neoliberal factions in this country have joined forces with corporate America to say everything after the Second Amendment we don't want and parts of the First and Second Amendment need to be erased too. What are we saying? Like right now I'm meditating on this quote. Um I'm going to not say it in the way, the specific way Dr. King said it, but I'll say it like this. Power is purpose achieved. And labor has got to revisit what that means for them. Because if you still studying wages and benefits only, then you are a dinosaur on your way out. There is no way we are going to be able to sustain ourselves at a negotiating table that doesn't center the common good, that doesn't center the struggles of women, of our LGBTQIA plus um, siblings, um, black siblings, the immigrants who come here and work their asses off for this country and don't receive anything for it. Women who need to understand that your fate is tied to that of your black sister, because see, we don't define woman as black woman or brown woman or Asian woman. When we talk about abortion and the appropriation of it, somehow (laughs) the headlines and the work only see white women. We have got to come to an understanding that everyone and baby, I mean, everyone outside of that wealthy land owning white man is in the crosshairs right now. 
So the question I want to come back to, especially for labor, because where else do you find a platform of resources, people and institution? Where else? We get we, we got to save our democracy in this moment, Steve, and labor does. A couple of things I thought of just talking, Stacey, is, is to me one of the the beauties of, of the, the teacher organizing that was done is that um both first because you deal with the kids, there's a, a, a obvious common ground between teachers and parents. They bring folk together that might norm, not might, might not normally be together. And then what you mentioned on top in Chicago in particular, because you're forced to live in the city then teachers are the community. I think what happens so often is that this kind of um, thing, we have labor on one side, community on the other, and ignores the reality that community folk work for a living, okay? They're workers too. And union folk are parents and they live in communities. And so that's the natural, natural connection there that's only thwarted when we don't allow that organization to take place. So the value, I think, some of the new organizing into new unions helps crystallize this, this duality that will exist. That if I'm in Amazon, I cannot be in ALU as a union member. And I still work, I still live in Brooklyn, right? Or if I'm in a Starbucks on the West Side of Chicago, living there, but may work downtown, I'm, I'm both now. And the more that we can organizationally have people see both of those roles they have, it gets away from the implicit transaction between community group A and union B, what can we get along and so forth. Yeah, I think actually that's a really, really good point. And since you already brought up Dr. King, I'm just going to lean a little further into it because um, in my previous role, when I worked at Georgia Tech, one of the things that we used as a blueprint was, um, you know, from the speech, The Other America, um, Dr. King puts forward genuine equality. And he's basically like, you know, sitting at lunch counters and playing at the same playground or whatever like that. That's not really what this thing is about. It's about jobs, housing and education collectively, right, it's about the structural piece. Um, And there's a particular way that I feel like, um, you know, I feel like there's conversations that we've had, Stacey, where you're like, okay, um, this group or this organization is able to get in and have this conversation in ways that we might not be able to. How do I understand or, or, or step towards that? So when we think about worker centers and the way that unions engage with worker centers or community-based organizations where worker well-being is is central, um, there has been a tendency towards competition in the past. And I feel like in everything that I've heard you talk about is collaboration, is working across what are kind of these idea uh, uh, not even ideas, but silos um, and being able to build power in those ways because you're putting at the forefront the understanding that these structural things, we are only going to be able to win if we do it collectively. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? So Black women's leadership in this country has always been anchored in community. And so for me to like have the audacity to lead in 2022 America means that I submit to where my power emanates from. And the submission of that means that the only way that my leadership is powerful is if it's with people. And um, that ain't easy either. Because everyone wants to tell a woman and a black woman at that what to do, how to do it and when to do it. Um, And at the same time, we can agree on the fact that the only way that I'm powerful is when it's a we and a us. Um, And so that's the struggle um, for me and in that um, you have to find your tribe of people. You also have to be clear about your values and leading from your values. I believe in the humanity of Black people. I believe in the leadership of women. I believe in making a way out of no way. And that is quintessentially the story of the Chicago Teachers Union. We should be non-existent in this moment from every piece of legislation that was lobbied against us from the 1990s um, to the 2000s. We should not be in existence. And yet we're here. So you have to understand that I find a lot of 
familiarity and um, the whole concept of still I rise. Um, and so what does that mean for my leadership? It means that when others who have not had the restrictions of their humanity are in leadership of a labor union that has been regulated to a second class citizenship, it's easy for me to see the way out because I'm here. The only way that you get to know someone like me is because I can dream, imagine, and create that which is not seen yet. So it's not hard for me to say our union is going to win an elected school board, but we're going to do it with the people who are already working on it, meaning we're going to submit to a coalition. Um, it is easy for me to say that the pathway forward has to be a recognition of who's who who we need to have on the team because they don't have what they need either right the hard part because <laughs> it's always a hard part right the hard part is number one getting your voice heard Right. Because the invisibility of my voice didn't end because I was vice president or political director or not that I'm even president, like marginalizing a black woman's voice. It is truly American. Right. Is something that is easy um, for institutions and spaces to employ. So the how and and the with who becomes infinitely more important. So you just have to practice this, this generational um, ethic of figuring it out, right? You can't pay the gas bill because cash flow is down. Well, I'm going to call the gas company and figure it out. Um, you, you, you don't have enough air purifiers, right, for school to open in January, well, we got to figure it out. And sometimes figuring it out is calling in your people. And what we've done at the union is call in a whole bunch of people um, to understand what the struggle is. Um, I think in this, this era of leadership for our union, um, it is going to be infinitely important to be transparent about everything that I'm talking about today. Like you can't let people make up reality. You have to agree on the facts. What we can sit with is the different insights that people bring to the facts that are on the board. That's what we get to sit with. What are the insights that the community bring? What are the insights that labor bring, but not just the generic labor, women in labor, right? Black women in labor, brown women in labor, immigrants in labor, LGBTQIA plus in labor. Like, how do you hear that too? And, 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 and how do you make space for those voices? Because if we don't, then our umbrella is not going to be big enough for the fight ahead of us. The fight in front of us is well-funded. The fight in front of us is well-amplified. The fight in front of us is a celebrity, right? The fight in front of us is a nice, pretty package. And we over here picking up people along the way. We over here figuring out how to do it as we go along. And it is still righteous. So we have to be clear about who we are, who else we need, and the struggle that it's going to take for us to face these threats in a powerful way. But we have to decide that we're going to face them come hella high water. And that to me is the most important part of this moment is like I'm married, right? And it ain't easy because just two different people with two different perspectives. I don't care how much you in love, you still got a different perspective, but the concept of marriage is this commitment to staying there and figuring it out. That is the most powerful concept of marriage to me is that we don't get to quit. We got to figure it out because that's what we committed to doing. 
We got to create the marriage within the movement. Labor has got to submit to the commitment of that. Labor has got to submit to the struggle of that. Labor has got to submit to the messiness of that. I loved how you how you talked about um, both the need to, to to agree upon the facts, but to invite in the different insights. That's an important combination um, that we need to kind of not forget about at all. Um, We'd love to explore this whole question of labor and marriage, but maybe for another episode. Um, no, no, I mean, the metaphor was really important, by the way, seriously. Because the question is how to get people to to date and to get engaged and to get married. And you know, we can't skip steps, by the way. And 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 so it means it's an important process we go through to do that. And um, but next next episode though, I have one kind of closing broad question and some some other questions as well. Is your term four years, Stacey, or three? How long is your term about? Um, three years. So three years. Yep, or three years. <laughs> and and so we're like June, um, two thousand twenty-five. What does success look like? What have you achieved? What's your vision? Not you, but you, meaning the the movement that you're a part of. What does success look like for these three, next three years? You are such an organizer, backwards mapping, or you could be a very competent educator too, because we do the same things. And it may not be either or, by the way, but go on. Yeah, well, you know, I'm going to call it for those two. Um, look, in 2025, we're going to have, um, we're going to be embarking on um, an elect, another uh, election for an elected school board in Chicago, where we bring more um, members of the school board from grassroots um, there who are parents who have everything to gain or everything to lose with this school board. That's one thing. The second thing is, is that we're going to be getting money, revenue, progressive revenue um, that sustains our school communities. We're going to have school communities that are joyful because they have everything else kids come to school for. Kids come to school to play sports. They go to school to go to the prom and homecoming. They go to school to be on student government, to write for the newspaper, to create a yearbook. We're going to make sure that schools across this city have better school days um, that encompass more than just getting ready to fill in a bubble on a test, right? Um, we're going to have a membership that is clear about the stakes of the fight because the fight is still going to be here in 2025, but they're going to see themselves as women who are educators, who are residents of Chicago, who are mothers. Um, our members are going to fight for universal child care. We are going to be principals in that fight because we need it too. And the parents um, that we serve need it. We're going to have a parent, a powerful parent partner and that we want empowered parents who are workers, right? Because I want to, I want to, I want to engage with workers who are parents who understand the function of workplace action, who get the, the necessity of an agent union. And then we're going to create this space that is anchored in community and labor that struggles, figures out, struggles some more, creates a model for how we can both have facts and different insights and win together. So nothing, just nothing. No big, no big deal. <laughs> but I want you to know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you a calendar invite, Stacy. And so on June 29th, 2025, we'll be back on this podcast to say, okay, girl, how'd you do? Check, 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 okay? Can't wait. Cannot wait. And and hopefully when I come back then, Stephen, I can come back with the next layer of leadership for our union who will speak more cogently, who will speak very clearly and transparently about what their things are for 2028. That'd be great. That'd be great. To wind things down, Stacey, um, what you reading? Books, magazines? What are you reading right now? The Chicago Teachers Union Constitution. <laughs> now, now that your bedtime reading puts you to sleep or, or what? Robert's Rules of Order. <laughs> oh my God, that sounds so exciting. Wow, okay, sounds good. It does good. not sound exciting. Um, Karen Lewis said two things to me. She said, Stacey, you know the rules before the game start. 
So those are things that I'm reading. When a black woman who's who's survived this America, when a black woman who has survived and flourished in this America gives you advice, you take it. And so when you ask me what I'm reading, I'm reading how to um, how to understand our unions inner workings to make sure that it works for the common good. And so that's where the rules of order come in. That's where the Constitution comes in. I think that that is my required reading for this summer. Anything else? Come on, any, any fiction books or nonfiction books that don't deal with the rules of order and constitution? It's just wondering, not, not a requirement, by the way. Not like a summer reading list you got to give me anything. A uh, summer reading list. Stephen, I have three children. I have an eight-year-old, an 11-year-old, and a 13-year-old. I'm reading their text messages. I'm reading their internet cachet. Is that how you say it? That's what I'm reading. <laughs> Our history, thank you. Yeah, so that's what I'm reading, Stephen. I wish I could give you something that sounds. I understand that. That's so good. That's so good. Professorial, but I'm just fighting to survive as a worker, a mother, and a wife. And I still ain't saying nothing about that man. God bless us. Y'all pay for my marriage. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I just want the truth and no, no fake lists. But I know, you, but I know you listen to music though. Okay, what music keeps you going? Yo, I am digging some Kendrick Lamar. Um, I always okay. thought I liked him, but like his new CD uh, and his vulnerability as a okay. younger black man is really inspiring me and, and helping to connect me with my son in a deeper way um, to have these conversations because he's a fan, too. That's cool. Anything else? Just wondering. Uh, I'm just saying I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13. You know, I'm saying that on repeat. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm so glad we did this, Stacey. This has been wonderful, okay? Thank um, you. As I say every time, Chicago will always be home. And so when I get there, I'm going to give you a holler. And I can meet, meet you and your family and your husband and other folk and see what's happened, okay? Yes, sir. So thanks a lot, okay? Thank you. Thank you. You'd be good. And Sharice, great seeing you again. Great talking to you again. Always. We will, do, we will do this again, again and again and again. Absolutely. Wait, 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 wait. This is the end of this miniseries, isn't it? Um, who told you that? Uh, Yeah, it's in the contract. Um, um, There's no contract. And... <laughs> The old union slogan is no contract, no work. And you will not be a unionist. So there's been work and no contract. I will see you next time around, okay? See you next time. Thanks, Stephen. I really enjoyed talking to Stacy. I love the idea that school is more than simply filling out standardized tests. It includes football games, school dances, band practices, and chess clubs. The emphasis on testing begins to sap the life and joy from the school day and it inhibits real learning. It was great to hear a detailed view of how they rebuilt the Chicago Teachers Union into a fighting union through trusting the members by being transparent and engaging in messy but ultimately successful value work of participating coalitions. I look forward to checking back with Stacy to see how things are proceeding as she is president. Thanks for joining me this week on Black Word Talk. Please check out our co-sponsor, Convergence's website at convergencemag.com or its Facebook page. And pick up the new Convergence book, Power Concedes Nothing, How Grassroots Organizing Wins Elections, a collection of essays and interviews about the on-the-ground efforts that mobilized voters in 2020 across the United States. I hope this podcast can grow to become part of the network for a movement for change. We need your help as you build the Blackboard Talk community. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your podcast and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. And beyond the financial support, I'd love to hear from you. What do you think about the show? Any suggestions for future guests or future topics to explore? Please let me know. Reach out to me at steven at blackboardtalk.com and I promise to get back to you. Until next time, stay safe and be well.